Right, let's just pray before we begin. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that everything that we need to know is in there. Father, we thank you for everything that you're doing in this fellowship. Oh, Lord, we, we pray now that you'll teach us. Father, we pray that you'll just open up your word to us. Lord, uh, anoint me and all those who hear. Father, that your word might become our experience. Oh, Father, give us a greater revelation of Jesus. Because, Lord, we ask it in his name. Amen. Right, okay, if you'd be finding 1 Corinthians and chapter 12, now we're continuing this series on the gifts of the Spirit, and we've actually dealt with the gifts now, we've just about knocked them on the head, um, everything you ever wanted to know about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but were afraid to ask. And you'll remember I've said in earlier studies in this series, that when Paul teaches about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, he does so within the context of two other things, fellowship and love. And this is important because Paul didn't deal with the gifts of the Spirit in an isolated way. He always ensured that the teaching was balanced. And you see, the gifts of the Spirit aren't meant to be just an isolated experience that we have, but they're given within the context of fellowship together. And so what we're going to do tonight is that we're moving on to the first of two studies about the whole area of Paul's teaching of fellowship together. And then after that we'll be moving on and ending the series with three or four studies on the subject of love. Because love, of course, is the heart of fellowship. <clears throat> now what we're going to do tonight is what I'm calling a kind of an overview of the subject. In the sense that what we're covering tonight is the fact that all believers, all of us, because we are Christians, are part of the body of Christ. If you like, the church universal. The church throughout time. The church which incorporates all true believers in it. And then next time we'll be moving on to what it means to be part of a particular church. But tonight we're taking the subject of Paul's teaching on being part of the body of Christ, if you like, the church universal. Now you should have your Bibles open at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And uh, first of all, go to verse 12. And he says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. And now, if you go down to verse 27, and he says to them, Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. Now this verse 27 really is the one that we want because he's talking to the Corinthian Christians and he says that you are the body of Christ. Now obviously we are part of it, all of it. This is written to all believers throughout time. 
And so really what we're going to home in on tonight is the fact that Paul says that we are the body of Christ. And I want to do this by breaking down each word of that sentence. So then, first of all, we, we are the body of Christ. Now, obviously, it hardly needs saying here that the basis of inclusion in the body of Christ is being a genuine Christian. We are not here talking about church going. Uh, we are not here talking about people who believe they are Christians because they've been brought up in a so-called Christian nation. And in fact, Britain today is post-Christian. There's no way it's a Christian nation in any way at all. Now, what we're talking about here is the fact that people who are within the body of Christ, the only people who can be considered to be in the body, are those who truly know Jesus. It's not enough to be religious. It's not enough to be an adherent to Christianity in some kind of, you know, institutional kind of a way, uh, baptised as a baby or, or, or married in a church, anything like that. The basis of inclusion is a personal relationship with Jesus. So therefore, to be born again, it's then that, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, that then we're baptised by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. So that's the first thing to understand, that the basis of inclusion is only true believers, people who have a personal relationship with Jesus, who have been born again of the Holy Spirit. But the main thing that I want to home in on is the fact that, that, that here we're saying we are the body of Christ and that the we is a corporate statement. <coughs> now in the prayer that Jesus said that he wanted us to pray, it's called the Lord's Prayer, but in fact it's, it's not, it's the prayer he said that we were to pray. <coughs> it begins, Our Father who art in heaven. Now what I want you to notice is that when believers come together, say 20, in a prayer meeting, that it's not 20 believers coming together all saying, My Father. It's a group of believers coming together saying, Our Father. Can you see the corporate aspect in that? Now you'll remember in the Old Testament the story of uh, when Moses was bringing Israel through the wilderness, leading them on to the time when they would move into the Promised Land. And at one particular juncture in their travels, they hit up against a particularly nasty nation called Amalek. And the Amalekites really at that time only had one major ambition, and that was to destroy the Jews. And suddenly, there they were, confronted with the Amalekites, thousands of them. And what the Lord told Moses to do was to go up to the top of a mountain, the, the action was taking place in the valley, and he was to go up to the top of the mountain where he could have a clear view of what was happening. And that what God told him to do was to hold his rod above his head. Now, God had given him a rod. You remember, he held the rod over the Red Sea and it parted. And that rod represented his authority. It represented his faith. God had given him certain promises, promised him that they'd go across the Red Sea. <clears throat> he held the rod over and it parted. Can you see, this rod represents faith. Absolute trust that what God has promised he is going to do. So therefore, God said, look Moses, up that mountain, mate, 
and get that rod and hold it over your head. But for any of you who have tried to do that for any length of time, holding something over your head, well, my goodness, you'll soon realize that the arms start to ache. So after a little while, the rod, it kind of, you know, Moses started to let his arms down, you know, because they were hurting. And what he saw in the valley was this. As long as he was holding that rod in the air, Israel was beating Amalek up. But as soon as he let the rod down, the Amalekites started to win and the situation was reversed and they were beating Israel up. So it seemed that it was all dependent on Moses holding this rod up. Now you see, the thing is that, that, that here is what's so important. You see, no one can do that, you know, just standing there for hours and hours and hours holding the rod above his head. And he got really tired. And so what happened is that Aaron and her came along and they got this big rock and they put it there behind him and he sat on it. Now, there's a lovely, lovely picture there because, of course, in the New Testament, in Corinthians, Paul talks about the fact that the rock that followed them in the wilderness was Christ himself. And the picture that we've got here is Moses sitting on Jesus. It's Moses finding rest. It's Moses coming to that realisation that the Christian life, that the spiritual warfare, that our discipleship, everything that we're called to do, is not dependent on what we are doing for Jesus. It's a picture of Moses coming into that revelation that the Christian life is Jesus. The battle is the Lord's. Can you see that? And that Moses here is seeing the fact that it's not dependent on his strength, on him standing up. And so he finds his rest sitting on the rock. And you'll remember how Jesus said that you that are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. And that's a lovely, lovely picture of when you realise it doesn't depend on you. It depends on Jesus and you can just begin to rest in that. But the important thing to get here is that it was Aaron and her who put that rock there for him. And even though he was now sitting, even though it was certainly a bit easier than it had been before, nevertheless, he still had to keep those arms in the air, and that was tough. And what happened then is that Aaron and her stood either side of him, and they each held one arm up. Now what's happening here, it's a beautiful picture, and the picture is this. There is no way that you and I can come into the blessings that we have in Jesus. There's no way that you and I can come into the rest of the Christian life, the victory of the Christian life. And there is no way that we can live by faith, truly in the Lord, day by day, if we are trying to do so on our own. Moses was dependent on the Lord. Yes, of course he was. But here we are seeing that God wanted him to have a dependence on Aaron and her, his partners in the Lord. And what we're seeing here is quite simply this. In the Christian life, you cannot go it alone. There is no way you can go it alone. Go back down into verse 27. 
Paul says we are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Now there's a balance here that we must absolutely hold in our minds at all times. Paul says we are individually members of the body of Christ. Now we must never lose sight of the fact that our relationship with Jesus is that of an individual with Jesus. We have individually been brought into the kingdom. You are you as an individual. I am me as an individual. And we must understand that anything that denies individuality is wrong. If anything happens whereby individuality is lost, that is always wrong. Uh, I'm reminded of uh, sort of some teaching that was fairly popular some years ago, and it was the idea of mashed potato Christians. And that what it was saying was that uh, sort of like you get Christians and they're, you know, sort of like individual potatoes and you bung them in the pot. And people say that's fellowship. But this teaching said, no, 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 that's not fellowship because they're still individual potatoes. But when you mash them up into mashed potato, then that is true fellowship. Now, of course, that is not true fellowship at all. The Lord doesn't want us to be all mashed up together so that individuality is lost. That's absolutely satanic. We are created in the image of God as individuals, and that must never, ever be lost. It's Satan who wants to come against that. And, of course, in many areas of the church today, particularly in some of the house churches, you have what I call really Christian communism, the idea that the individual is totally surrendered to the larger mass. That is absolutely crazy. So we must understand that the balance here is that individuality must never, ever be lost. But individualism has got to go. Now, can you see the difference? Individuality is actually our image of God. That must always be kept. But individualism is something that is very wrong. Individualism says, I am okay, I can go it alone with Jesus. I do not need other people to be having a bearing on my Christian life. Now, that is individualism. And you get individualistic Christians going around, doing their own thing, irrespective of other people, other believers, who are meant to be part of their lives. So that is something that is quite wrong. Individualism has got to go. We must get rid of this idea that as Christians we are quite free to go it alone. You know, I've got Jesus, he's all I need. Well, in one sense, yes, but the point is that Jesus himself wants to give you fellowship. He wants to give you brothers and sisters who can be all wrapped up in the warp and woof of your life for your encouragement, but also, when necessary, for your correction. You know, sometimes uh, we really do need people to bring us back down to earth, don't we? Very, very easy to end up so spiritually minded, so heavenly minded, you know earthly good. Now, we've got to be earthed in reality, and fellowship is one of the things that enables us to do that. We can never live the fullness of the Christian life if we are going to try and go it alone. So therefore, we are the body of Christ, and we've got to be in it together. Now the second thing is that Paul says we are 
the body of Christ. And the important thing about the fact that we are the body of Christ is the tense. It's in the present tense. Now one of the things that we need to get into our hearts more and more from the Holy Spirit <clears throat> is that the Christian life is not trying to become something. Many, many Christians are always aiming for a kind of a standard. Oh, one day when I'm a mature Christian, one day when God has blessed me more. And they're, they're kind of, they're trying, trying, trying to become something. That is not what the Christian life is. The Christian life is in fact realising and then being what we actually are. Can you see the difference? Let me give you some examples. Go to Ephesians and chapter 1. Ephesians and chapter 1. And it's verse 3 that we want. <coughs> Paul says to them, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now what I want you to see here is Paul is saying that we have already been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Because every blessing that we can ever have comes from Jesus. And Jesus is actually living in us. Therefore, it's not a question of we need to receive blessings. Boy, we don't need to receive blessings. We need to see that we have every blessing already in Jesus. It's merely appropriating those blessings. Can you see it's a past completed action? It's already been done the moment that you were born again. It's already been done. Therefore, we are in possession of all these blessings. Because the blessings are in Jesus, and Jesus is in us. And it's not a question of trying to get blessed, scurrying around from meeting to meeting, trying to get blessed. It's letting Jesus out. Can you see that? We already have it all. Go down into verse 6. He says, To the praise of his glorious grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Now, I think that the King James Version kind of gets the, the meaning of this right. And what the King James Version translates this as being is this. Paul says, He has made us accepted in the Beloved. Now, that is the burden of the Greek. That is what comes across. Now, can you see, again, it's a past action. God has made us accepted in the Beloved. Now what that means is this, as far as you and I are concerned with Father in Heaven, the truth is this, we are accepted by Him. And we are accepted by Him for one reason, we've been born again. Jesus is living in us. So therefore, can you see, you do not have to keep doing things to try to become accepted by God. 
Uh, many Christians are on the terrible, terrible, you know, terrible kind of spiral of, of kind of, got to pray more, then God will accept me. Got to read the Bible more, then God will accept me. Got to be more faithful, then God will accept me. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not against praying. I'm not against reading the Bible. I'm not against being more faithful. Far from it. But can you see, <coughs> if you're trying to do those things in order to get accepted with God, you haven't understood. You haven't understood the gospel. And the gospel is this, we are accepted by God, whether we are doing those things or not. And the truth of the matter is, it's when you realise that you're right with God and, and that God accepts us just the way we are because of Jesus, then you are free to live the Christian life. It's not a question of trying to earn points. I mean, God hasn't got a blackboard in heaven where he's keeping score. And all our black marks are going against us. Even when we sin, we just confess it. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. He forgives us our sins. They're gone. If you're trying to work a point system in heaven, you'll, you'll never get anywhere. That you are living the Christian life on the basis of that you've got to get accepted by God. No, the basis of the Christian life is that you are accepted by God. Can you see what's coming over here? It's God's present tense. The fact that we already are accepted. The fact that we already are in position, uh, in possession of every blessing that we need. I'll show you another one. This is a goodie. If you go to 1 John, the first epistle that John wrote. 1 John, and if you find chapter 2. Now we'll start reading from verse 12. There's something in here that I want you to, to get hold of. It's, it's really rather nice. He says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Now you've got to understand that what John is doing here He's obviously knows that the place that he's writing to has got little baby Christians, uh, kind of teenager Christians who have been with the Lord a bit longer, but they're not really grown up yet. And then there are the mature Christians, the fathers. I want you to notice what he says to each um, kind of group of people. Then he goes on to say, I am writing to you young men. Now these are the kind of the semi-baby Christians. They're in their teens, all right? He says, I am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now what I want you to see is that it might have seemed to have made more sense if he'd been kind of writing and saying, <coughs> I write to you fathers because you have overcome. And uh, But I'm writing to you, youngsters in the Lord. I mean, obviously, we're not talking about necessarily actual age, but you young Christians. We'd have understood it. He said, and I'm writing to you because you're getting there when it comes to overcoming the devil. But he doesn't say that. He says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Now, can you see what he's saying? Irrespective of how old you are in the Lord. 
irrespective of how many years you've had to mature in the Lord, irrespective of that, if you only became a believer yesterday, the truth of the matter is that you have overcome the evil one. Again, it's a past completed action. And what this means is this. You do not have to try to overcome Satan. You do not have to try to become an overcomer of the evil one. You are an overcomer simply because Jesus is living in you. Satan has been defeated in your life. It's not that if you keep working hard at it, he's going to be defeated. He has been defeated. <clears throat> and again, the secret of the Christian life isn't working hard to try and overcome the devil. It's getting the revelation that the devil is overcoming your life. That you have absolute authority over him. And therefore, all you have to do is to actually put your foot down. So what we're seeing here is God's present tense. Now think of it like this, a present is a gift. And everything in the Christian life is a free gift from God. It's a prezi. And that the Christian life isn't trying to become all sorts of things, the Christian life is diving there under the Christmas tree, getting a revelation of what we already have and opening our prezies, unwrapping the presence that God has given us because we are disciples of Jesus. Now we're dealing tonight specifically with the whole thing about the body of Christ. And in exactly the same way, what I want you to see is this. You must not try to become part of the body of Christ. What you need rather is the revelation that you are part of the body of Christ. Paul says, we are the body of Christ. Now there are one or two things here that I want you to get hold of because they are tremendously important. Now what I want you to realise is this. You must understand <coughs> that you are part of the body of Christ, irrespective of whether or not you are part of a particular church. I'll say that again. If so be you are a believer, you are part of the body of Christ, irrespective of whether or not you are part of a particular church. Now, I'm not here advocating not being part of a church. I'm not saying that that doesn't matter. But you see, many, many Christians, for reasons which are perfectly legitimate, aren't part of a particular church. There are other Christians who have no intention of being part of a church regardless, and that's wrong. But there are many believers who for genuine reasons are not part of a church. I mean, for instance, over the last few years, uh, people have asked Belinda and I, which church are you part of? And what we have said to them 
is that we're part of a church that doesn't exist yet. Well, praise God, it does now, the Chigwell Christian Fellowship. But for years, we were praying it into being. We were waiting for God's time for it to actually come into existence. And you see, many, many Christians, even as yet, they're not part of a church for the simple reason that they cannot find a proper church to be part of. They can find conglomerate groups of Christians. But that is not what a church is. A church is far more than that. And therefore, because they cannot find a proper church, they are therefore being led by God to wait until they can. Now that is just realism. When I'm saying that many Christians can't find a proper church to be part of, it's no use throwing your arms up in the air in horror. That is just realistic. That is just the truth of the matter. And so therefore we need to understand that it's so very important to realise that we are part of the body of Christ regardless of whether or not we are actually part of an individual church. Now the main thing that you've got to get hold of about this is as follows. If you are one of these Christians who believe that you can only really be part of the wider body of Christ by being a part of a particular local church, then you have misunderstood what the Bible teaches about this whole subject. You see, it's not that you become part of the body of Christ by becoming part of a particular local church. That is not the way it is. The truth of it is that you are free and you are able to become part of a local church precisely because you are already, as an individual, part of the body of Christ. Now, can you see that? It's not that you become part of the body of Christ when you become part of a local particular church. It's the other way around. You can become part of a local particular church and take your place there for the reason that you have already taken your place in the body of Christ. Because the Holy Spirit has put you in the body of Christ. Now, if you get that, the wrong way round. You're going to end up with a mentality that is false and a mentality that is actually going to hinder you in your Christian life. You see, if you believe that you are only validated and that you only become part of the body of Christ when you become part of a local particular church, then what you're going to find will happen to you is that when you do become part of a particular fellowship, all right, that you'll find that rather than that enabling you to become stronger and stronger as an individual before the Lord and coming to know the Lord better and better, you'll find that a church, if you have that mentality, is rather going to merely become a crutch to you. And it's going to hinder you rather than to help you. 
And the reason being is because you'll end up thinking that the only way that you can be validated as an individual before the Lord is by becoming part of an individual church. And that is absolutely the wrong way round. Now we need to be part of a church to enable us to grow strong in Jesus, yes. But the truth of the matter is, <coughs> the stronger we are in our individual relationship with Jesus, the greater the part we will be able to play in the local church. Because then we'll be able to be people who are coming along. And when we need to receive, we'll receive. But the point is we'll be able to come and we will be able to give. We won't be like these Christians who are like vacuum cleaners. Suck, 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 suck. And nothing ever comes out. Spiritual black holes, I call them. Like sponges, always having to receive, receive, receive. Never anything to give. The reason for that is that they have become more dependent on their church than they are upon Jesus himself. And that is why it is so very important to understand that you only become part of a church because you are already, as an individual, part of the wider body of Christ. And that depended upon the sovereign action and power of the Holy Spirit himself. So there's a caution. Do make sure that you never ever become more dependent upon your church, your fellowship, than you are upon Jesus. You know, there are many, many things in the Christian life which of themselves are good. But even they can become a bondage. Even they can become an idol. For instance, marriage. It is a good thing. It is a marvellous thing when believers marry. And God loves marriage. He's really into marriage. It's totally good. But can you see that a Christian could even make an idol out of their marriage? And then something that was meant to be such a blessing to them can actually itself become a curse. Because they've allowed the marriage to come between them and Jesus. And you can do that with a church. Allow your church to come between you and Jesus. That must never, ever be the case. It must be clear in your mind that your relationship with Jesus is because you as an individual are already part of the wider body of Christ. You must never let your individual relationship with Jesus become dependent on being part of one particular local church. Now this is why the idea of trying to tie believers down to one church for life is so crazy. And there is a teaching going around, and you find it largely in the house churches, and it's the idea that when you become part of a local church, that you, almost, you take out a covenant for life with them. Can you see? And that you're tied down to that particular church. And, and it's like you'd find that the leaders would feel that if you were to ever go anywhere else, you'd be out of fellowship with God. Because you can only be right with God when you are part of that particular church. Now that is ridiculous. And the reason it's ridiculous is that because it forgets that as individuals, we are already part of the larger body 
of Christ. Can you see that? And that one of the things that churches like that need to realise is that if someone leaves their church for whatever reason, Jesus actually goes with them. Jesus is outside of their church. And we've got to understand this for ourselves. Jesus is here with us, yes. But he's outside as well. And if there ever comes a time when any of you believe that God is calling you on elsewhere, you will never find Robert and I trying to put the pressure on you, saying, no, you mustn't go, you mustn't go, you won't be right with God. If you leave our church, you won't be safe. That is ridiculous. Because Jesus will be going with you. And you are free to leave this fellowship without any pressure whatsoever. At any time when God leaves you, you are free to leave. <coughs> we will be sorry to see you go, obviously. And we hope we'll see you again. But there would never come a time if any of you felt that the Lord was saying, it's right for you to leave this church. You would not find the pressure being turned on and kind of the undercurrents of all oh, well if you do that your relationship with Jesus isn't going to be right can you see because you are validated before Jesus as an individual because you are already part of the wider body of Christ irrespective of whether or not you are part of any particular church be it the Chigwell Christian Fellowship or be it any other so I want you to get hold of that that is tremendously important Right, Paul says we are the body of Christ. Now, I've got a bit of a list of uh, scriptures here that we're going to read through, so do bear with me. And of course, uh, would I ever get you to read scriptures that are unnecessary? No, of course not. And first of all, go to Romans, Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, and start reading at verse 4. Now, what Paul says, he says, For as in one body we have many members, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 17 and Paul writes because there is one bread and that what he's, he's using the symbolism of bread here for Jesus because Jesus was the bread that came down from heaven because there is one bread we who are many are one body for we all partake of the one bread over into chapter 12. We've already read verse 12 and 13, but we'll read them again with the emphasis that we need now. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and were all made to drink of one spirit. And go down into verse 20. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The last one, go over into Colossians. 
chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, and verse 15. <clears throat> and he says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body. Now then, I'm sure that the more intelligent among you have already realised what it is that I'm going to bring out about this. And it's this. There is only one body of Christ. It is the body of Christ because it is singular. There is only one. Now then, we need to understand that geographically and throughout time, the body of Christ is broken down into its component parts of individual churches. So the body of Christ is the church universal all over the world, but not just all over the world now, but throughout time, all the believers in churches there have been and all the churches that there are yet going to be in the future. So the body of Christ is broken down into those component parts, individual particular churches, geographically and throughout time. But the important thing is that there is only one body of Christ. Now, if there is only one body of Christ, it follows too that there is therefore only one head of the body. And the one head of the body of Christ is Jesus himself. Had it ever occurred to you the significance that Jesus was crucified in a place called Golgotha? And the word Golgotha, Golgotha means the place of the skull. Have you ever wondered why that is? I will tell you. Because there the head of the church died. And it was through the death of Jesus, it was because of his death, that the church came into being in the first place. So what we are seeing here is that there is only the one body of Christ. And therefore, because there's only one body, all the parts of that one body are together under one head and one head alone. And the head is Jesus himself. Now something tremendously important flows from that. And what flows from it is this. Because Jesus is the one head of the one body, exclusivism between true believers is absolutely out. Any time you come upon an exclusivist attitude amongst believers, that is always wrong. You know Christians who are dead fussy about who they have fellowship with. You know, you talk about, you know, a particular group of Christians and, oh, well, of course, we don't have fellowship with them. Now, that is completely wrong. Now, we've got to understand that there is one exception here. And the exception is this. <clears throat> it is, of course, wrong for us to have fellowship 
with any believer who has been legitimately and justly put out of fellowship. For unrepentant, willful sin. If believers have been put out of the church for that reason, and it has been done legitimately, and it has been done justly, then it is right that we refuse to have fellowship with them until such time as they have repented. But, apart from that one very, very small exception, we are one with all believers, and we must never, ever refuse to have fellowship with believers. There must never be amongst us this exclusive attitude of, oh well, no, we don't have fellowship with them. Turn with me uh, to 1 Corinthians, back into 1 Corinthians, and something that Paul writes to them. And chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll start reading at verse 3. Now look what he says. He says, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving like ordinary men? For when one says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not merely men? Now, what Paul is saying here, look, what you Corinthians have got amongst you is you're being picky about who you have fellowship with. You're more or less saying, well, if you're not one of us, if you're not one of our immediate, you know, sort of little factions, then we're not going to have fellowship with you. Can you see how terrible that is? There must never, ever be exclusivism amongst us in any way at all. And again, this is why it is so terrible when you get churches where the leaders of the church discourage the people in their fellowship from having fellowship with believers of different fellowships. And you've got this thing that where there are some, again, particularly in the house church movement, there are some churches where if you're part of their church, they actually require you to withdraw fellowship from any believers from outside of that church or outside of their movement, if you like, because they're normally tied in with some national pyramid hierarchy with loads and loads of different churches, part of it. Yet again, denominationalism rears its awful and ugly head, you see. Now that's crazy. And the reason it's crazy is because those men are saying that they are the head of the church. They're not the head of the church. The only head of the church is Jesus. It is so wrong when leaders in churches say that their people can only have fellowship with their own church or other churches which have been cleared as being okay by their leaders. Can you see how desperately wrong that is? And again, that is why here in this fellowship, you are free to have fellowship with absolutely anyone. Robert and I don't go around checking up on who it is you're having fellowship with. And let me tell you as well, we never, ever will. Because we have absolutely no right to. You are free to have fellowship with whomsoever you will. 
Right, now then, it could now well be the case that those of you who know me well, um, and maybe even some of you who don't know me so well, are scratching your heads at the moment, and uh, you might think this seems a little bit inconsistent, what he's saying. And what you may be asking yourself is, look, Beresford, how do you now tie up what you've just said, that exclusivism is wrong, and it is? How do you tie that up with the teaching that you give here against some of the churches that are on the scene today? So, so how is it, how does what I've said tie up with the fact that you know that I am less than happy with the churches on the scene today? Now, what I want, I really want you to understand carefully what I'm now going to say, because this is tremendously important. Now, it is true that I maintain that because Jesus is the one head of the church, and that because what he wants for the church, he's in charge of it, and what he wants for the church is revealed in the Bible, because of that, I maintain that we must therefore stand against any so-called church which is unbiblical. That is, that we must not accept unbiblical churches as being true churches. You know full well, I have no time for Anglicanism. I have no time for Catholicism. I have no time for Methodism. In fact, I have no time for isms at all. And my prayer and my burden is that one day soon all our isms will be wasms, because I just haven't got the time for them. And the reason for that, I mean, for instance, just, just last night, Julian was asked by somebody, they said to him, um, where are you going now? Like, you know, i.e. by way of which fellowship are you part of? And he said, oh, well, I'm going to the Chigwell Christian Fellowship. And they said to him, oh, yeah, but which church are you going to? Now, can you see how terrible that is? You see, the thing is that when unbiblical churches are accepted as being proper Christian churches, <coughs> then proper Christian churches, which are biblical based on the Bible and the teaching of the Bible alone, then they become a kind of anachronism in people's minds. The oddity. Oh, they're a strange bunch, aren't they? So can you see what Satan's doing? If he can keep the counterfeits going, if he can keep false churches going, and isn't it horrendous that genuine believers are in there propping these churches up? That is absolutely horrendous. That if Satan can keep these things going, then society looks on and they see churches which they assume are proper Christian churches. In actual fact, those churches aren't because they don't tie up with what the Bible says. So then God raises up churches that are scriptural and people think, oh, they're not proper churches at all, almost as if they're the fanatics playing games or something like that. Now, can you see, many of the churches out there today do not match up to the biblical criteria of being a church. And it's as simple as that. 
Therefore, I, as someone whose loyalty is to Jesus, as someone whose loyalty is to the revealed, written word of God, I therefore cannot accept them as being churches at all. For that reason, I have no time for them. But, and this is what I want you to understand, <coughs> I have all the time in the world for my brothers and sisters who are part of those isms. Can you see? If you go to an Anglican church, and in fact we've, we've got people here in this very fellowship, some still going to Anglican churches, we've even got some people here still attending Catholic churches. But you see the thing is, they're my brothers and sisters, that doesn't come between us. We have fellowship together, it's absolutely fine. And you see, when I'm fellowshipping with those people in this fellowship who are part of the Catholic Church, I'm not having fellowship with their Catholicism. I'm having fellowship with them. And the reason I'm having fellowship with them, and the reason that I love them and they love me and we get on great, we share our lives together, the reason for that is because Jesus is in me and Jesus is in them. That is the basis of our fellowship. And that we really need to understand that I don't have to agree with you about everything in order to have fellowship with you. And you most certainly don't have to agree with me about everything in order to have fellowship with me. I mean, if you said Beresford come along to our Catholic Church next Sunday, I wouldn't go. I wouldn't go. But my goodness, nothing has stopped me having fellowship with you personally. You, you come round and see us. We'll come round and see you. We'll have fellowship together in Jesus. Absolutely no problem whatsoever. And you see, this is why, again, in this fellowship, everyone's free to go to whatever meetings they want. Even the ones that Robert and I don't approve of. And boy, there are meetings out there that Robert and I don't approve of. And you are absolutely free to go. And if you do go, it won't be a black mark against you in the eldership book. Because there ain't no eldership book where black marks go in. Can you see? You are absolutely free to go anywhere you want and to fellowship with anybody. Can you see that the basis of our fellowship is Jesus? There is one body <coughs> of Christ. And therefore, we are already one with our brothers and sisters. This is why this ecumenical movement is so stupid. I mean, all the isms trying to get together into some big super-ism so that they can be one. I mean, can you see how crazy that is to try and get unity between Christians? Now look, I'll tell you. I am not going to try to become one with you because I already am one with you in Jesus. And don't you try to become one with me because you already are one with me in Jesus. Can you see? Now, can you see, when we start believing that, boy, that is when we're going to really go places, isn't it? When we see that, that our oneness it isn't something that we try to become one, 
We are one. And Jesus wants us to live that out because Jesus is living in each one of us and that is the basis of our fellowship. And one of the things that saddens me is that there are Christians who won't have fellowship with me. I can only speak personally, though I know that this is true for those, you know, for quite a few of you here in the fellowship as well, but I can only speak for myself. And it saddens me that there are believers who I know who won't have fellowship with me because of what I teach. Can you see? And that what they are saying, and this is very, very subtle, they are saying that the basis of their fellowship with me is that I have to agree with everything they believe. Now that's crazy. They're saying the basis of Christian fellowship is agreement on secondary issues. And that's ridiculous. I can have fellowship with you quite happily whether you agree with me or not. Secondary issues are absolutely irrelevant when it just comes to having fellowship together. And that really, we Christians, of all people, ought to be the ones who are big enough to simply agree to differ on secondary issues. This is so very, very important. And we need to understand this. Now, anything, if I'm wrong about anything, all right, you may not agree with what I say, okay, well, by all means, you come to me and show me from the Bible that I'm wrong. But if you can't show me from the Bible that I'm wrong, well, I'm going to stick with what I believe, because I honestly, honestly do believe that this is what the Bible says. And that's why I take the position that I do. But wouldn't it be sad if you refuse to have fellowship with me? You know, saying, oh, at Beresford, he's a troublemaker, or whatever. We've had people come here, haven't we? And we've got to know them, and it's been lovely. Not that we're trying to catch anyone for our church. People are free to come and go as they choose, and there are quite a few people here. You go to other churches, you come here as a kind of a backup. That is absolutely fine. You are utterly free to do that. No one is going to pressure you to leave your churches to become part of this church. I mean, that just isn't our style. We're not interested in that. If Jesus wants you to be part of our church, He'll let you know, and you'll know that. But we've seen people who have come here from other churches, and we've got to know them. And then in the teaching, something has come up, uh, usually something uh, that their church is doing, and I've demonstrated from the Bible that what their churches are doing are wrong. Usually, might I add, because they've asked me, this has happened in question times, hasn't it, when they, in fact, have brought these things up. And then what happens? We don't see them again. They've got the ump. And they've gone. They've sort of taken it personally. I mean, that is absolutely terrible. Isn't it sad when that happens amongst true Christians? It really is. Anyway, there you have it. We are the body of Christ. Now then, body. Body. This is one of the many, many pictures in the Bible that we're given for our corporate life and our discipleship together. For instance, also in Corinthians, Paul likens the Christian life to being a field, that we are a field. Um, he likens us to a building. Uh, some of the pictures Jesus, for instance, Jesus used the picture of the vine 
And that's another valid picture. He also used the picture <coughs> excuse me, of us being a flock of sheep. And the reason that all these pictures are there is that each one of them has something specific to teach us about the nature of our corporate life together. Now, obviously, you've got to be careful that you don't take any one picture too far. That is why there are so many pictures, you see. Because you can take any one analogy, press it much too far until it's completely false. And the reason we're given so many pictures is that they balance each other, they offset each other. I mean, for instance, take the idea um, of the sheep, the flock of sheep. Now, that is a beautiful picture. The kind of, um, you know, the the response of the sheep to the shepherd. Beautiful picture. The helplessness of the sheep without the shepherd. Beautiful picture of our dependence upon Jesus. Our own helplessness in our own strength. But you see, push that too far and you come up with the fact that sheep are mindless and they're herded. Now, sadly, many Christians have taken that very picture too far, and they're herded together like mindless sheep. You know, along come the big shepherds, I'm your shepherd, you've got to do whatever I say. And like mindless sheep, believers, they flock together and they do precisely that. Can you see, you must never take any one picture too far. But we're interested in the picture of the body. Now, what is it that this particular picture teaches us? Well, back to 1 Corinthians 12, our base passage. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 14. Now I'm not going to, uh, really the passage we want is right down to verse 26, so I'm not going to uh, read it all, but uh, you'll get the idea. He says, <coughs> For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Uh, verse 18, but as it is, God arranged the organs in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single organ, where would the body be? As it is, there are, are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. And so it goes on. Now therefore, what Paul is doing here is he's likening us to the fact that as individual Christians in the body of Christ, we are like hands or arms or livers or spleens or hearts and things like this. And that is our individual function. But of course what he's bringing across is the fact that the organs in a body, because remember, although my body is made up of individual organs, all right, it is one body. And that's the same with the body of Christ. So that whereas you've got these individual organs, it is only when... They are interdependent upon each other and working together in harmony, each getting on with its job in relation to the rest of the organs. It is only then that the body can function properly. And we're back where we started off this evening. You cannot go it alone in the Christian life. We've got to be together because we're individual organs of a corporate body. And I'll tell you, a liver sitting on a, a, a laboratory bench in a glass jar is no good to anybody. 
it's only when that liver is part of a body that it can function and that the body that it's part of can actually be blessed and enabled to work properly. And that what it boils down to is this, we need each other. We desperately need each other as Christians. And what that means is this, it means firstly that we are responsible for each other. <clears throat> now I like that, I really like that, that's a relief to me. That means that if I'm in trouble, you've got to gather around me and help because you're responsible for me, okay? And that means that if you're in trouble, I've got to gather around with other people to help you. I think that's great, we're responsible for each other, terrific, but there's a rub to this. Because it means also that we are responsible to each other. And what that means is, I can't for one moment expect that I'm free to just go off and do my own thing, irrespective of the effects on other people, without my brothers and sisters coming and saying, Oi, what are you doing? What do you think you're up to? Can you see? We're responsible for each other, but also we have got to be responsible to each other. There's got to be accountability to our brothers and sisters. Now, I want to emphasise, I am not purely talking about accountability to eldership. That is not what I'm talking about. I, you know, the, the big leaders and there they are, wow, the elders. That's not what I'm talking about at all. Robert and I are as accountable to this fellowship for our lives as anyone else here is. Robert and I have no special privileges because we're elders. Can you see? We are accountable to each other. Now then, one of the things that we need to really understand is that the organs of the body, when they're working properly together, they are functioning in harmony. They are functioning in absolute harmony. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I just want to show you a couple of things in the scriptures that describe this so, so wonderfully. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10, and Paul says, I appeal to you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no dissensions among you. Now, he's not sort of talking about we've got to all be thinking exactly the same thing, but he's saying no dissension. You know, that, okay, if we believe different things, I mean, we're free to debate them, no problem. Absolutely no problem at all, debate these things. But we're not going to have barnies about them. We're not going to let them divide us or anything like this. They're secondary issues, no, no problem at all. And he says, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Can you see the harmony of that? Go over to Philippians, where he wrote to the Christians at Philippi. Again, chapter 1, and we want verse 27. And he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he's talking about their manner of life corporately. Look, he says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Isn't that beautiful? And then he says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. 
One of the ways that God has given us to overcome this wretched fear of what people think of us is that, well, if we do these things together, to that extent there's safety in a crowd. It's one thing to have people think that you are just crazy or that you're off the rails. But when you're part of a whole fellowship that people think are off the rails, then it kind of, it takes the, you know, the limelight isn't quite so much on you, is it? And it's easier to be free of fear when we're part of a, a, a united fellowship together in the power of the Holy Spirit. So can you see there that unity, that harmony that Jesus wants to create amongst us? And one of the things that so thrills me at this fellowship is this very harmony and unity. Now, we've got vastly different opinions between us about various things, and that is absolutely right. Oh, but the harmony, the love that there is here. And I really pray that we will just see that grow and grow and grow. It's early days for our fellowship. We're going to be tested. I mean, let's, let's make no mistake about that. But I really pray that above all, that the heart of Jesus will just keep being revealed amongst us. So in order to have that harmony, in order to experience that oneness, can you see that in our fellowship together, we must have a commitment that goes beyond superficiality? It's not enough to just come together and say, oh, we're just having fellowship because we're Christians. That is not true fellowship. And we're going to be moving on next week and seeing exactly how the Bible defines what fellowship is. But can you see that there's got to be a commitment to the Lord and therefore to each other that goes beyond anything superficial? Then you really have Christian fellowship. One of the things we're seeing is you can't go it on your own. You've got to be in fellowship with others. And let's, let's, let's have a look why. Look, on your own, if you're going to go it alone as a Christian, you can be self-righteous. You can be a right snotty old so-and-so, you really can, you can be absolutely self-righteous. But if you're going to get in fellowship, you can't be self-righteous. You're exposed. Because in a close fellowship, when you get these people who are, oh, oh well, you know, look at me, aren't I doing great? You know, and the only testimonies they share are dramatic ones, you never hear them confessing their faults, do you? Well, you're not going to get away with that in a fellowship. Because people are going to say, well, I just don't believe you. You're just not sinful enough. Can you say, you're not going to get away with that in fellowship. None of us are. That applies to all of us. You're going to be exposed. And believe me, that is why some Christians don't want to be in close fellowship. They don't want their Christian lives under any kind of close inspection at all. They just want to drift around the meetings where no one really knows them and they can impress everyone with their spirituality. Well, you can't do that in true fellowship, all right? And when people like that come into fellowship, one or two things happen, all right? They either realise and come to repentance, which is marvellous, and take their place as a sinner, all right? Or they get the ump and they leave. Either of those things happen, all right? Now then, on your own, if you're going to go it alone as a Christian, you can be self-centred. But believe me, in fellowship, if it's a fellowship worthy of the name, you are forced to look to the needs of others. Tremendously important. And on your own, you can be really spiritual, can't you? Really super Christian. 
My goodness, but when you get in fellowship, you are revealed to be a failure just like the rest of us. Can you see? In fellowship, people aren't going to get away with those kinds of things. I'm not, Robert's not, you're not, no one is. Because this is one of the very reasons that God has put us in fellowship with each other. But on the other hand, and I think this is beautiful, if you go it alone as a Christian, you can lose your faith. But you can't when you're in fellowship. Because we're going to be there, or whatever fellowship you're in, your brothers and sisters are going to be there to look after you. If you're going to go it alone as a Christian, you can be in want. But in fellowship, you can't be in want because people will see your needs and they'll meet it because they love you. If you're going to go it alone as a Christian, you can be lonely. But when you're in fellowship, you've got friends. And I'll tell you, you've got real friends. Friends who stick by you. Friends who are there for you. You'll not be without true friendship in fellowship. And then on your own, if you're going to go it alone as a Christian, then you can end up thinking that you're more sinful and useless than anyone else. And many Christians think that. Real bad inferiority complexes. They go around thinking, oh, I'm so... Well, I've known people, they think they're too awful to join a fellowship. Can you see? So go it alone and you can think you're, you know, the, the, the worst Christian walking the face of the earth. But you see, the thing is, <coughs> if you get stuck into this fellowship at any rate, you know what you'll discover? you'll discover that the rest of us think that we're the worst Christians walking on the face of the earth. Can you see? And therefore, we're all in it together. And you're not going to end up with that awful inferiority complex that Satan loves to give us. Let's just think for one moment. That lovely story in the Bible when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John 11. Don't, don't turn to it. But... Lazarus was there rotting in his cave, wasn't he? You know, the stench pouring out. And Jesus comes along and he stands outside the cave and he says, Lazarus, come out. And he raised him from the dead. And then what he says in verse 44 is this. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with bandages, his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, can you see what a beautiful picture that is of the Christian life? Lazarus had been raised from the dead, and out he waddled, rather like, see Christopher Lee in The Mummy, you know, all, all wrapped up in bandages. Well, here comes Lazarus, he can't see a thing, he's sort of trussed up in bandages, he's waddling out, he's got new life, he's absolutely alive, but I'll tell you, there's not a lot he can do with it, he, he, he can just about hop around. But even then he's bumping into things the whole time. So he's got his new life. But can you see, Jesus told the disciples to unbind him and let him go. Now you and I have been given new life in Jesus. Jesus is alive in us because we're believers and that's fantastic. But can you see the way that we get free of the bandages and the face cloth of the old sinful nature? The way that we get unbound from all our bondages. It's not just that you become a Christian and that's it, they all fall away. No, it's in fellowship. We unbind each other and we let each other go. And can you see growth as a Christian? 
The picture, and we're seeing it right the way through this study, the picture is always in the context of our corporate life together. We are the body. But you see, some of what I've said, it may strike you as being all rather a tall order. My, my goodness, what a, what a responsibility upon us. Well, we haven't finished yet. Because Paul said that we are the body of Christ. The body of Christ. And now I want to show you where the emphasis really is. You know me, I'm a man of few words. And that if I can sum something up in three words, I won't do it in 300. Or not often at any rate. <laughs> now let me <coughs> take salvation. The whole topic of salvation. The whole subject of faith. The whole area of holiness the whole thing about the Christian life. Let me sum it up for you with utter theological accuracy in one word. Jesus. Jesus. Everything in the Christian life is Jesus. And we are the body of Christ. This is what Jesus wants to do through us. Go over into Colossians. Paul's letter to the Colossians. Look at the end of verse 27. And he says, The glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The emphasis is that it's Jesus in us. But what is the context of him saying, Christ in you, the hope of glory? Go back to verse 24. 24. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Can you see? <clears throat> I live in my body. Jesus lives in you and I as the body of Christ the church universal. And the emphasis is not down to us. The emphasis is on Jesus living all this through us. If my body fails to respond to my head, then you have physical disability. Now the tragedy of the situation today is this Jesus is the head of a spastic church the body is not working in the way that the head is seeking to direct it can you see the tragedy of this and that is why here at Chigwall at any rate by staying faithfully close to the scriptures by staying faithfully close to Jesus in repentance of our sin and our failure we want to be a little microcosmic local body that the head 
Jesus can move at will. We do not want to be a little microcosmic body belting around in spasms, charismatic spasms, out of touch with the head. We want to be only doing what the head, Jesus, is directing us to do. That is how we can play our part in putting the tragedy of today's spastic church right. Our responsibility is our obedience here. And you see, the glory of it is this. If you and I do the submitting, then Jesus will do the living. I live in my body. But what you and I must ensure <coughs> is that we are continually open to the Lord and in repentance of our independence from Him and our disobedience to the Bible's teachings. This is why everything here is always going to continuously be tested according to the Word of God. So that Jesus has His way irrespective of what any of us might want. Now then, we are the body of Christ. I thought, now, what's a good, because we've said a lot tonight, what's a good way to help you remember it? And I thought, I know, we'll try an acrostic. Now, an acrostic is when you take the first letter of each word in a sentence and put it together, all right? So that what we've got is we are the body of Christ. W-A-T-B-O-C. And if you put that together, you get Wattbock. Alright? So take that away tonight. Go away remembering we are the body of Christ, Wattbock. And after tonight, from now on, if I ever come up to you and give you a big hug and whisper Wattbock in your ear, well, you now know exactly what I am meaning. Next time we move on and we see what it means to be part, not of the church universal, not the body of Christ, we've done that tonight, but what it means <coughs> to live that out and be part of a particular, specific, local church. Right, we'll end it there.